0: Welcome to Hillhurst United Church, the podcast. We're really glad you're here. Whoever you are, wherever you're at, join us on the journey.
1: So we are we're en- engaging in a bit of a conversation. Hopefully have a chance uh, to engage you also with some questions at the end. Yesterday was a great day. Uh, yes. As you reminded us at the beginning of the, of the morning, it was Epiphany. And we just heard the uh, band read that Epiphany story, which uh, is about revealing, it's the sort of the kickoff into the new season. You know, that, that Epiphany story has a significance in the Christian tradition. What's, what, what, how do you see that? What's that, story? why is that story important? So I'm gonna talk this yeah, way, you talk. although Me you're be. right there. You bet.
2: Um, well, Epiphany uh, is a Greek word, epi- Epiphania, which means appearing. And so in Epiphany, we talk about God's appearing. And we're thinking about in Epiphany, how does God reveal God's self to us? And in the Christian story, as well as in the Jewish story, and I expect also in the Islamic story, we want to talk about a God who is continually appearing in manifold ways, in ways that are predictable and in ways that are completely unpredictable. So what we all believe is that God is for us, God is with us, God is with creation, for creation, and God wants us to know that. And so how does God make that revealed to us? God does that in nature. God does that through one another. God does that with sacred texts, whether it's the Torah or whether it's for Christians, the New Testament and the Hebrew Bible, or whether it's the Quran Uh, and in other religious traditions it's through other sacred texts. and so we want to talk about, then what God's appearing is like. and in this story of the wise men, the magi, the wise people, we see that uh, God is appearing in a very uh, unlikely place, namely in the child of a young teenage girl, and uh, a dad, an older dad probably, in a manger, in a completely unanticipated way, a kind of a bolt out of the blue that upends everything. And so in Epiphany, we also wait to be surprised by God's appearing. So it's a, it's
1: a revealing story, surprising. Um, here's God coming in a vulnerable place, an unexpected place, and that's probably, that's the nature of God.
2: That's, that's precisely the nature of God is not that God, uh, somebody was telling me uh, that Christopher Hitchens said that was a bit of a cock up on the face, uh, uh, on the part of God, that if God really wanted to be revealed that God should have picked Augustus Caesar, a palace in Rome, because then God would be a heavy hitter. But what Christopher Hitchens didn't really understand in that is that the revelation of God does not come with the demand for power and control. God's almightiness is not determined by the idea that God can do whatever God wants. God can build an infinitely, uh, create an infinitely uh, sized boulder that the infinite God can pick up because God is so infinitely powerful, right? The almightiness of God is revealed in the almightiness and the radical gesture of welcome, Mm. of the giving up of power, for the sake of love. That's how God's almightiness is known. So Christopher Hitchens kind of thought about it in very political ways, but this story that we have, like Herod is frightened, frightened of a baby. I mean, that's really kind of uh, (laughs) quite a juxtaposition. Frightened of a baby in a manger, right? And so uh, he rightly should be, He's, he's right to be frightened because this one who comes is going to call into question everything that he values, all that he seeks to control, but not in a way that's going to wield a bigger sword, but rather in a way that expresses welcome.
1: Mm, nice. Like the first hymn today, or first yeah, hymn. exactly. Yep. So, the other th- the thing you did yesterday when I was putting together, I didn't know what you were going to talk about yesterday when I put out the Hailhurst happenings and said, you were going to talk about, uh, I said I called it, what's Jesus' job description? Uh, but you did talk about his job description yesterday. Uh, yes. Jesus' job description was is is proclaiming or speaking the kingdom of God. Say something about, Andrew's going to come up with a question, but come uh, talk about the kingdom of God because we see that, we pray it. You already sang it today. Yeah. So the kingdom of God, kingdom
2: of God, what is that about? Right. So what I was talking about yesterday was that the... Um, The Greek uh, term for kingdom is the Greek word basileia, and the Greek word basileia can mean a lot of different things. So usually that's translated in a very kind of royal term when we read the New Testament for the NRSV or the RSV or whatever as the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God, but the word basileia is a term that has a large semantic field or a large possibility of meanings. So it can mean realm, it can mean dominion, it can mean commonwealth, it can mean empire, but in that case it's highly paradoxical, right? Um, But another way of thinking about this, because I was asked yesterday, isn't, isn't that all really kind of hierarchical language? So we can break out of that frame and we can think of the space of God, the space of God. And the space of God is a space that's everywhere, everywhere, inside us, around us, above us, below us, the space of God is everywhere. And so when Jesus was talking about, say in this text that we had, repent, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent, the space of God is here, right? The space of God is here, how then will we live within that space? Meister Eckhart once said that God is only as far away from us as where we are right now. God is only as far away from us as where we are right now. And then he said another saying: God never, God, God only goes so far away from us as the door. So God is always at the door. That speaks then of this sort of. Space, this dynamic space of possibility.
1: So he used, uh, he he talked in parallel. What language
2: did he speak? Uh, Jesus spoke Aramaic, which was a sort of a people's version of Hebrew. Uh, I likened it yesterday to the difference between classical Arabic and Arabic. So um, the uh, Hebrew Bible is written in sort of the equivalent of classical Hebrew. But people spoke, sort of everyday Hebrew, sort of what we might call sort of a, 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 um, a common, common uh, Koine, a common Hebrew, and Aramaic was its dialect. So he didn't speak English? <laughs> well, he spoke German.
1: <laughs> Spoken as someone who's German. That's right. <laughs> So, yeah, so there's lots, and we talked a bit about in translation, you know, going from Aramaic to Greek, et cetera, et cetera. So, and some gets lost in translation, but you've got to look at different translations because the language is different, correct?
2: Exactly right.
1: And uh, then he, and Jesus uh, spoke in parables, defined parables for us.
2: Okay, like, so uh, yesterday I, I kind of spontaneously came up with this, with, with, with this image, and people kind of liked it, so... <laughs> um, So, uh, generally speaking, in the scholarly world, a parable is a form of literature that uses an everyday story to make a transcendent truth. Great. But, I said yesterday that a parable is when you wake up in the morning to go buy groceries and you end up in Saskatoon. (laughs) In other words, a, a parable puts you in the middle of routine kinds of things, but it takes you in a place that you never thought you would arrive and you never planned on arriving there and sort of how did i end up in saskatoon right now this is a long way from home i didn't expect that Hmm. so a surprise do you want to go ahead
0: I was, t- was going to butt in.
2: Yeah, butt in. I, uh, okay.
0: So I love this idea that um, you invited us into yesterday that was uh, so often we busy ourselves with the translation of these words because words really matter. Uh, they're very important to us. But one of the things that we need to remember to draw our attention back to is how Jesus used these words. And that's hmm. one of the invitations of the parables. But one of the things that you introduced us to was this idea as a parable as a hidden transcript. So that's uh, what you just mentioned about An everyday story that relates to a transcendent truth. Um, One of the things that I'm so curious about these days, uh, in in Jesus' time, the structure of society, the economic system, everything, it didn't make telling the truth about these things something that was uh, that was openly available to people. It was dangerous to proclaim the kind of radical things that Jesus was proclaiming. Today, In our particular culture and context here in in Canada, let's say, um, I think about things like social media and how uh, a hidden transcript is so far away from the reality of what we're seeing. People say absolutely everything whenever they feel like saying it, however they want to say it. And one of the things that I've experienced is how this makes us treat parables either as not the radical pieces of uh, revelation that they are. Um, And so we tend to simplify them, turn them into an analogy that that makes sense to our logical brain and and run with it. Or we tend to read them so quickly and pass by them because we just want it said to us plainly. And so my question for you is practically, how do we re-radicalize or uh, re-enchant ourselves to the parable stories?
2: Yeah, thank you. That's such a difficult question. I appreciate that question. And I'm glad I had all night to think about it. <laughs> um, so uh, I, I'm gonna tell you what, uh, I, I was on the, when I was on the, on, on the plane coming here, there was a guy that was wearing a t-shirt from some rock band. And it said on the back, um, nothing is true, if nothing is true, everything is possible. If nothing is true, mm everything is possible Um, and uh, yeah I suppose that's true everything is possible Uh, but do we as North Americans who consume so much of the world's resources do we really want to go around wearing t-shirts that says that if nothing is true everything is possible I mean um, there's a way in which the parables invite us to a kind of a commitment uh, the one of the values of the church, the f- last one, is risk. It yeah. calls us into, into risk. Um, there are lots of places, well the world is in a very risky place right now. I, I hope I'm answering your question. That's okay. The world is in a very risky place right now because of climate change. right? And one of the questions is, for us as the people of God, or people who are on a spiritual journey, is how does what we claim to be true about God, how does that propel us, convince us, direct us to engage the world's problems? And so, say in North America here, where there is a kind of a story of endless progress, of endless economic growth, and so on and so forth, that has come at an enormous cost. Think of the forest fires that plagued us through the summer and probably will plague us next summer because of such low snowpack and so on. And so, um, how then do these parables invite us to be disruptors of the idea of endless progress, of endless economic growth? It's true that we're not in risk of being thrown in jail, et cetera, but there are very, very powerful forces that would tell us that, look, we need to really take care of our economic home, we need to uh, continue to promote prosperity, that the good life is measured by the ability to do anything you want whenever you want it, like to go on endless cruises, endless European vacations, and so on. But the parables invite us to a a different account of what a good life looks like. The parables invite us into a picture of the good life that is centered in hospitality, in uh, welcoming the other, in seeking economic reconciliation, social reconciliation, and so on. That that is what the good life is measured by. And that actually can be fairly radical. I don't think it's probably very radical, as it were, to the people in the room right now, right? But in a larger sense, it can be very, very radical, yeah.
0: I, I really appreciate that, and, and having a lens to read the parables through that is of current context is really helpful, and this, um, I yeah, I really appreciate that, Harry, thank
2: you. What are, go ahead. Yeah, I was gonna say, um, one of the things that's really interesting about the parables for those of us who are urban dwellers, say in Calgary, um, and we're concerned about the environment, is the way that the parables are regularly couched in the land. So, the kingdom of God, uh, one of the parables, Jesus says, is like a seed that is sown secretly, and nobody knows, uh, and after a while, the, um, the um, uh, blade comes up out of the ground, and nobody knows how that happened, right? that there is an abundance to the land, that, that the land is sort of supercharged with God's presence. So there's a kind of a, a call back to earth for us and a call into an earth-based theology. So uh, we pray your kingdom or your kingdom come uh, on earth as it is in heaven. That isn't a kind of a call to be spiritually heavenly minded. It's rather a call that God's justice, wherever God is, God's reign, God's justice, would be here on earth. And it's for the goodness of the earth. For the and,
0: and so much of that is, is spoken about just by way of the language that's used in the parables. It's very natural language. It's right. the mustard seed, it's the leaven, it's the vine and the branches.
1: Right. Yeah. What did Jesus really care about?
2: What did Jesus really care about? Well, Jesus cared about two things uh, in a word, uh, in in one sentence. Uh, Jesus cared about loving God and loving your neighbor. That's what Jesus cared about. Jesus cared about the the commandments. Uh, The 10 commandments, uh, there's kind of two parts of the 10 commandments. How should we relate with God and how should we relate with one another? So Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind and all your strength and love your neighbor as yourself. Uh, uh, therein lie the Law and the Prophets. I think that's it in a nutshell. Uh, But loving God and loving your neighbor was about something that was as close to you as the breath that you breathe, right? So loving God means being thankful for the breath that you breathe, right? Loving your neighbor means understanding that the breath you breathe is shared with your neighbor, so that there's the horizontal and there's the vertical dimension. I think it's sort of like, sort of dead simple. Um, I went to school for a long time, right? Uh, I wouldn't have passed an exam if I wrote that, but it's kind of that dead simple, I think, and that difficult at the same time.
1: Okay, uh, you, um, you, you were on a video during uh, COVID and you talked about the apocalypse. You hear lots of people talking about the end of the world's coming. Say something about that.
2: Uh, the end of the world uh, is coming. Uh, it will end in a supernova of the sun several billion years from now. So the end is inevitable, right? But the book of Revelation, or the uh, we, we live in apocalyptic times. So if we, I, I, I teach a class in the book of Revelation and I have a thing in my class called Apocalypse Watch. An Apocalypse Watch is where I ask my students at the start of every class to talk about where they've heard the word apocalypse used in media in the prior week. So you can talk about an apocalyptic storm, or you can talk about an apocalypse, for example, in Israel-Palestine, uh, or you can talk about an apocalyptic market, and so on and so forth. So, one scholar, whose name is Catherine Keller, who teaches at Drew University, she says that we are in apocalypse. We are in apocalypse. In other words, apocalypse has so suffused our imagination, so entered into the everyday uh, vocabulary that it's kind of part of our consciousness. But if apocalypse is part of our consciousness, then there's always a sense of impending doom. Right, and not only that. Then you have people who want to read the Book of Revelation to really talk about how the doom that is around us is already written there in a book that was written two thousand years ago. Right, that's one way of thinking about apocalypse. Um, But the word apocalypse means revelation, and the Book of Revelation is a revelation of God. Right, and. The Revelation in the book of Revelation is about truth-telling, because the book of Revelation is written in a very violent Roman Empire. And the book of Revelation is wanting to talk about the violence of the Roman Empire. So when uh, John in the book of Revelation is talking about apocalypse and apocalyptic, he's really talking about what is the revelation of God. And I think that the call for us, right, is to live lives that are revelatory, to live the revelation, revelatory, apocalypse, revelation, to live lives apocalyptically. And what do I mean by living lives apocalyptically? I mean living lives that are revelations of God in the world. Living lives that are revelations of God in the world. So if God is only as far away from us as we are, or only as far away from us as the door is, right, then if God is with us, Emmanuel, if God is with us, then how do we become signs or revelations of God's presence with us in the world, right? And I think that the book of Revelation, uh, with all of its weird, crazy stuff, uh, is is finally a kind of a story about talking about how we live out God's presence with us. It's by truth-telling, it's by giving witness to what is right, to what is good and seekings to expose in the world what is not right and what is unjust. Mm-hmm.
1: Nice. Do you have a last question because I got one. What's the point, why would we bother coming to
2: church? We need each other, we need each other. We're not able, I mean, I don't know about other, so if, if we think about our secular society for a moment, where are there points where people gather together? Sporting events, rock concerts, People have profound experiences of transcendence in rock concerts and so on and so forth, sporting events. But where are there occasions for people to gather together for an hour a week to hear about, to talk about, to contemplate what it means to be a fully alive human being? Where does that happen? That happens in religious communities. I think that Uh, Some of us are really great people. Some of us are not so great people, right? Some of us are real sort of Moral spiritual kind of giants who are able to be perfectly individual perfectly spiritual I'm not that person. I need my brothers and sisters Around me to remind me who I am What I'm called to be why I'm here what the story is that I'm wanting to live right and to hear that when I don't do that well, that we're all kind of broken in our own ways, but that God, nevertheless, welcomes us and forgives us and makes us whole. That's why I think we need to be here. I kind of
1: agree with you. Okay. Okay. Uh, Very, 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 very last question. What gives you hope?
2: What gives me hope? Wow, every new day gives me hope because every new day is another day of possibility because every new day is a gift from God. Um, I don't always live that way, right? I Sometimes I live like it's another damn day. <laughs> uh, but uh, when I'm at my best, or when I have a more conscious way of thinking about myself and the world around me, what gives me hope is that there's always room, there's always places for God. And I know that even in the most broken places of the world when we read about them in the media, right, we also discover stories about people that, in their brokenness and their vulnerability, are reaching out to each other, seeking to care for one another, right? We usually think that if a crisis comes, in fact, the research shows that if there's a sort of a natural crisis, it's not every person for themselves in fact what the research shows is that people reach out to each other to help each other to help support each other that for me is the sign that god has made us to be a certain way and that god is here present with us right invisibly God, God is not sort of there. Obviously, for some of us, God appears like a flash from the blue. We have like profound spiritual experiences, mountaintop experiences, and so on and so forth. Right. But those don't happen every day. Maybe those happen once in a lifetime if we're lucky. But usually, we're sort of amidst the sort of the routine and the daily. What gives me hope is that God is there in the routine and the daily. Continually inviting us. God is invisible around us, but always manifest. Paradoxically invisible and always manifest. Revealing to us. Revealing, exactly.
0: Thanks so much for tuning in to Hillhurst United Church, the podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode and are thinking about someone who might enjoy it too... We invite you to send it their way and help the podcast grow. We're really glad you're here and we'd love to know what you thought about today's sermon. Leave us a review in iTunes or send us an email at
2: communications at hillhurstunited.com. We'd love to hear from you.